Hey everybody, it's good to talk to you again. This is Brian, uh, the pastor at Mount Hope's Belmont campus. Don't know where you're listening from, uh, but here in Belmont, it is March 31st and it's snowing outside. So if you're from somewhere else, be happy. This message you're about to hear, this talk, uh, was given as the end of our Nehemiah series. It's on Nehemiah chapter 13, talking about how Nehemiah built a new wall Everything went well, uh, but then he returns a few years later to find that things have not continued the way he wanted them to. So what does he do? How does he respond? You'll hear all about that in just a moment. This sermon was preached by Justin Joseph, who's a part of the teaching team here at Mount Hope. He did a great job, and so I hope you'll listen closely, because I believe that God has something he wants to say to you. Good morning. Thank you, worship team. Thank you for all that you do for us this morning as well. Uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Justin. Uh, I serve on the preaching team here at Mount Hope, and it's a joy to be with you this morning to worship the Lord together and to look into his word for just a few minutes uh, at this time. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, uh, you know we've been walking through an Old Testament book of the Bible known as Nehemiah. We've been walking through this incredible, incredible story, a retelling of the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And if you've been with, with us during this series, you know that this has been a crazy, crazy time of ups and downs, of successes and failures, of things working out and things not working out so well. Maybe I'll give a quick recap of what we've learned so far so that we can set the tone for what we're going to hear about today. In the book of Nehemiah, we, we started with chapter 1 and the early parts of the chapter talking about how in this book we can remember God's larger story in order for us to rebuild, whether it's our lives, our families, our churches, our ministries. In order to rebuild, we have to remember God's larger story. We then went on to say that in order to rebuild, we need to trust in God and to do our job. Third, we said how you build is just as important as what you build. We then taught ourselves to understand that in order to rebuild, we need to fear God and not be afraid. And then recently, we've been learning over the last couple of weeks that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And finally, last week, when Pastor Brian led us through chapters 10 through 12 of Nehemiah, where we learned that we have to credit God with the success in order to rebuild. This morning, we're at the end of Nehemiah. We're at the final chapter of the book, chapter 13 in the book of Nehemiah. Now, we don't have time to read through every verse this morning, but I'll give you a recap of what's happening in this chapter. But even more importantly, I want us to understand something else. Nehemiah 13 is not just the end of the book of Nehemiah. It's in many ways the end of the Old Testament. If you have a Bible in front of you, in one of the seats in front of you, and you want to pull it out at this moment, please feel free to do so. I think this might help us understand what we're talking about. We're on page... I'm going to guess about 352-ish in the Bibles in front of you. I'm just guessing. Amazing, it was. Wow, it's amazing. So page three, 352 in the Bibles in front of you. If you want to put a finger right in that page, right at page 352, Nehemiah chapter 13, and then put another finger right in the page that's between the Old Testament and the New Testament, roughly around 677, I'm going to guess, in your Bibles. Right again? It's amazing. <laughs> take the page, take the page that's, that's marked blank in between and stick your finger in both of those and maybe hold it just like this. 
if we're talking chronology, if we're talking sequential events that happen in the Old Testament, Nehemiah 13 is basically the last thing that happens, the last narrative that takes place before the New Testament starts. It's pretty remarkable if you think that. There are over 400 years that will pass between Nehemiah 13 and the first pages of the New Testament, but it's important to understand what we're about to learn today was the end of it all. Now, there are many books that follow Nehemiah in terms of prophecies and other things that happen, but in terms of chronology, in terms of the timeline, this is it, folks. This is the end of the Old Testament. This is not just the end of our series this morning. This is it. In terms of the Old Testament, this wraps up the story. So if you are God, if you are authoring the Old Testament, and this is the end of the Old Testament, isn't this the perfect time to end on a high note, to walk out on a high note, to say this is the crescendo of the Old Testament. This is the happy ending that my people have longed for and waited for. This is my chance to wow the people with some amazing, amazing ending. You're going to learn pretty quickly today that's not what happens in this chapter. Pastor Brian, when he led us through chapter 12 last week, that was a happy ending. In fact, if you read chapter 12, verse 43, it reads there like this. And on that day, this is the day that they dedicated the walls again to God. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. That sounds like an ending to me. Let's roll the credits. Everyone walks out clapping. And that is a wonderful ending to the Old Testament and to the book of Nehemiah. But sadly, chapter 13 also exists in Nehemiah. And this morning, we're going to learn about what happens. What happens when the ending is not necessarily what you imagined it will be? What happens when we do everything we can do and we end up falling short of what we ultimately wanted? Happy endings are something we look for all the time. We want that great finish to the story. We want that, that moment where you look back and say, wow, it was clear that God did what he had to do, the people did what they had to do, and everything just came together perfectly. When I think about this idea of being disappointed in the end, I, I think back to about 10 or 12 years ago. How many of you have seen the show Extreme Makeover Home Edition? How many of you have seen that? How many of you have cried watching that show? <laughs> so, so this show was actually... Uh, very popular. If you're not familiar with it, it was a show where this group of builders would come and find a very deserving family, and they would reconstruct their homes into these beautiful, beautiful houses and, and give them these amazing gifts and, and, and just bless that family tremendously. And it was such a happy ending at the very end of every episode. About 10 or 12 years ago, I was living in New Jersey, and uh, right next to my parents' home, Extreme Makeover Home Edition, trucks started pulling up next to one of the houses nearby, about, about three or four blocks away from my, where my parents live. And so over the course of several days, these trucks and trailers started piling up, and I knew someone was going to get a new home in that area. So the crowd started to gather, and sure enough, they were going to be working on a home for the next week in that vicinity. In fact, the home was for this family, this family that you see right here. It was the Giannis family of Bergenfield, New Jersey. An incredible story. Now, you can't see the whole family here, but you can see there is a husband and a wife, the husband in the red shirt, the wife in the, in the whitish blue shirt. Uh, the husband is completely blind. 
The two daughters that you see there are both blind. The grandmother you see in the back is blind. They also have a son who's completely deaf. So in terms of an, a deserving family, this family lived in a home that was completely uh, not right for them. The home was, uh, was smaller. It had a lot of stairways that go, went up and down between levels, a lot of sharp corners to counters, and the family was injuring themselves constantly. So local church actually reached out to ABC to see if the crew would come and rebuild their home. And it was amazing. Over the next week, I would drive by or I would run by that house regularly, and I would see what they were doing there. And there was TV crews everywhere. There was large crowds gathered every day. And then the day of the big reveal came, where they scream those words, move that bus, and the bus gets out of the way, and everyone is just so happy about the new house that's built. And here's a look at what it used to look like and what the new house looked like. It was incredible, but that's not even the beginning of the story. Inside the house, the crew put over $100,000 worth of technology into the house that would allow people with visual impairments to actually be able to maneuver through the home and cook and clean and do things within the home with no difficulty. It allowed them to also communicate with their son that was hearing impaired with no difficulty. The technology alone in the house was remarkable. Happy ending, right? It's awesome. They pull the truck away. Everyone is happy. The TV crews go their way. The crowds cheer and clap. ABC gets tons of ratings for it, and everyone goes home happy. Except about 10 months later, an article comes out in our local newspaper in that town. The article says the Giannis family has left their home. And it was really shocking to hear that. It was only about 10 months ago that this massive moment happened. And here's what we found out that they live in New Jersey, the state with the highest property taxes in the entire country, and as soon as ABC finished, the state and the local vicinity hiked up their taxes to the point where they could not live there anymore. Then, on top of that, they had all this new technology and maintenance to and upkeep within the house, and they just simply couldn't afford the upkeep and the maintenance. They had to sell their house and move down south because they just could not live here any longer. That feeling that you have right now, that feeling of disappointment. How could this happen? Shouldn't have there been a happy ending to this story? Shouldn't have there been this crescendo of joy and everything worked out well and they rode off into the sunset and everyone lived happily ever after? Shouldn't that have happened? When we come to Nehemiah 13, when we come to the end of the Old Testament today, we learn very quickly there is no happy ending to this story, and I'm going to prepare you for that this morning as we take a look at what actually happens. Let's remember again, when we heard last week, they dedicated the walls of the, of, of the city. They had dedicated themselves back to God, and everything is wonderful, and they're rejoicing together. And today, we're going to learn in chapter 13, things don't stay that way. The end of Nehemiah chapter 13 here is the end of the Old Testament. The wall is done. The people have dedicated themselves back to God. Nehemiah goes back to his job as the cupbearer of the king. He's back off in Persia near Babylon, and he's serving as the cupbearer to the king again. And about 12 years have passed at this point between chapter 12 and chapter 13. Not a ton of time, but some time has passed. Nehemiah decides, let me go back after the amazing victories we had in Jerusalem, after rededicating ourselves to God, after building a wall, and after doing everything so beautifully, and coming back to God, let me go back and check on how things are going. 
And that's where we are in Nehemiah 13 today, 12 years after chapter 12. We need to understand that a covenant was made in chapter 10 when, when Pastor Brian was talking about this. They made some deals with God. They had made some agreements with God. In the agreement, they had four stipulations in the agreement. And please just bear with me through this because it's going to help us understand where we're going. Four stipulations that they had in the agreement with God. The first stipulation was that they will not intermarry, meaning they will not marry the foreign people who had lived in that land because once they did, they would start worshiping their gods and those people would draw them closer to their gods and their, their idols and their false gods and away from the true God of Israel. So they said, we will not intermarry. And the entire congregation, all the people said, yes, we will not intermarry. The second stipulation of the covenant was that they would protect the Sabbath. We will honor the Sabbath. That means we will not work on the day of God. We will honor God on that day, and we will worship him that day. And all the people shouted amen, and they said we would do that together. Number three, the, the third stipulation is that they will tithe. They will bring their first fruits of grain and their offerings to the house of God, and they would fill the storehouses of God with the things that they had generously brought to the house of God so that the work of God can continue. They, honor, they honored that. They said, amen, we'll do that. They said, we will tithe. Finally, they said, we will not neglect the house of God. These were the four stipulations that they made in chapter 10. And now we fast forward 12 years to chapter 13, and let's take a look at what happens. Number one, we will not intermarry. Nehemiah comes back and he finds out very quickly the people had almost stopped learning or speaking the language of the original people because they had intermarried so much. Because they had intermarried with other cultures so much that they were now building altars to these other gods. They were going and allowing for the worship of other gods in that place. 12 years, and already things are starting to fall apart. The second stipulation is we will protect and honor the Sabbath. When Nehemiah comes back in chapter 13, people are working on the Sabbath. They are selling and buying. They are producing things, and then they are giving them out as, as buying and selling on the day of the Lord, on the Sabbath day. They refuse to honor the Sabbath. Number three, they said they will tithe. When Nehemiah gets there, in fact, there is nothing really in the storehouse. They're finding that the Levites, the priests, who were supposed to be working at the temple are now back in their fields because no one has brought in the tithe to support them and the house of God has gone into ill repair. We will not neglect the house of God. The temple is full of, of problems and issues that we'll talk about in just a little bit. We see that the, high pri the priest Eliashib has brought in Tobiah. If you guys remember Tobiah that we talked about a few weeks ago, the trash talker, the one that said this wall will fall if a fox climbs onto it. That Tobiah is now living inside of the temple, the place where God's work is supposed to happen. There is an outsider living there, a person who refused to honor God is now living there. Things have fallen apart. Things are not going well. They're profaning the Sabbath. They're not bringing their tithe. They are dishonoring God. They are dishonoring the house of God. In 12 years, things have fallen apart. So Nehemiah takes it upon himself to bring more reform to the people. He says, I will fix these things. I will make everything right. And here's what Nehemiah decides to do. He starts by kicking Tobiah out of the temple of God. All right, I fixed one thing right there. He has the people start bringing the tithe back in by force. He says, you have to start paying your tithe, and he forces them to do that. He then reinstitutes the Sabbath and says, everyone, you must stop working and worship God on the Sabbath day. 
And finally, when he finds out that people have started to intermarry, he goes on a rampage, beating them senseless and ripping out the hairs of the people who had intermarried. This is not quite the happy ending that you may imagine. Let's think about this for a second. The Old Testament pretty much ends with a man ripping hair out of another man. That's pretty much how it ends. Not the crescendo that you may have imagined, not the glorious return to God that you may have imagined, but that's how it ends. And it reminds us something. It keeps telling us that there is this theme that we've seen throughout this Old Testament, not just the book of Nehemiah. And we learned it on day one when we started this series, that none of this was ever about a wall. None of this was ever about buildings and building projects. These, this was always about God and his relationship with his people. And here throughout the Old Testament, you see over and over and over again the same, same theme. Right from the Garden of Eden and creation, God desires relationship with man. He desires to have this relationship with humanity. And mankind sins and separates himself from God. And as a result of that void, that sin, that separation, the two cannot be reconciled back together again no matter what man does. That man can try and try and try, but it doesn't fix the problem. Man tries, but he falls short. Sin separates man from God. And then God calls a man named Abram and he and he establishes a covenant with him and he establishes this lineage, this family line through Abraham and he starts this process again as I want to build a relationship with you. I want to have my people and I want to do something great through these people. But the lineage of those people starts to sin and separate themselves from God again and no matter what they do, they just cannot get back to God. They cannot reconcile that relationship and that story ends with war and division and families fighting amongst themselves and problems occurring all over the place. And for 400 years, those people that God chose go off into slavery in Egypt. And God raises up another man that he establishes a covenant through, and that's Moses. And he starts to work through Moses to bring the people back to God again. The people sin, the people are far from God, but God keeps coming back to them, and he delivers them from slavery. It seems like a great crescendo, but then you start to see in the desert how they wander away from God. They separate themselves from God. Even Moses himself does not get to enter the promised land of God. And there is this massive break again. This division between God and man, and no matter what happens, you can't reconcile that relationship. And so then God starts to call up prophets out of the people of Israel. He calls up judges and kings from the people of Israel. And you would think now the people will come back to God and everything will be right again. But still, sin separates people from God and that relationship is never right again and it's broken. And because of that brokenness, there is no reconciliation. And that's where we lead into today, Nehemiah 13, the end of the book, the end of the Old Testament, that no matter what we do, Nehemiah did some amazing things in his time in Israel, but no matter what he did, it wasn't enough to bring the people back to God. No matter how hard he tried, he still couldn't reconcile that relationship. You see, here's the problem with sin is the essence of sin is not just the violation of laws. It's not just that God set up these rules and we broke the rules. The essence of sin is this, is that it wrecks the relationship between God and us. It's, it breaks that relationship. It does not allow it to grow. It breaks the relationship with each other. 
It breaks the relationship with all of the created order. Everything is broken because of sin. The people are off in exile. They are all scattered around the world. Nehemiah comes back and he tries to fix things. And the best way he can fix things at this point, pull out people's hair. That's how frustrated he is. That's how little he can do. After all of this, the Old Testament ends with a man pulling out other people's hair. That's how it ends. And it's a reminder. It points to that there's got to be something else. There's got to be a better way to finish this story. And the truth is this is what our lives are because as much as we like to separate ourselves from this story, as much as we like to say this happened 2,500 years ago, I have nothing to do with this, let's be honest with ourselves this morning. This is our story. This is what we live through every day. We are in a situation where we are constantly breaking our relationship and our connection with God through sin, and we're doing everything we can to somehow reconcile that relationship as much as we can, and there's no way that we can do it. Look what Nehemiah said. Nehemiah said, look, if we can just rebuild the temple, or, or in the Old Testament, we said if we can just rebuild the temple, we can come back to God again. If we can just get people reading the word of God again, we can reconcile with God again. If we can just rebuild the walls, we can reconcile with God again. And we do the same thing every day. If I can just do some things, I'll be good enough in the eyes of God to achieve the salvation that I'm looking for. If I just have a good heart, that's good enough for me to achieve the salvation that God has for me. If I do nice things for other people, that's good enough. As long as I'm a good person, that's all I need to do. When Nehemiah is pulling out their hair at the end of this chapter, he's making it so clear. There is no way that I can ever be good enough for what God is trying to do here. There's no way I can do anything to reconcile this relationship back with God again. We are sinners in need of a savior. I think a lot of times when you hear a story that's unsatisfying at the end, you are left wondering what else was there. Think about a book or a movie you may have read where you've read the story and you just said at the end, I can't believe that's how it ended. A couple, many years ago, uh, if you've ever listened to Dr. Ravi Zacharias, who's a very famous apologist and preacher in the Christian world, uh, Dr. Zacharias uses this story which I think tells it very well. Back in 1974, he was a missionary in Cambodia, and it was a very, very tumultuous time in the nation of Cambodia at the time. And one night, he and his interpreter went to a play, to go see a play one night while they were in Cambodia. In the play, and I'll summarize the story of the play, because I think this is going to show us what we're talking about today. In the play, a prince, a wealthy prince, had stolen the wife of a peasant who was newly married. The prince refused to give the wife back to the peasant and told the woman that if she ever claimed this peasant was her husband, that she would die and her husband would die. When the peasant went to the king one day and said, O oh, king, your son has stolen my wife. Would you have him return my wife back to me? The king went to the prince and to the, the, to the, to the young woman and said, Is this man your husband? And the woman, thinking, if I say yes, he will die, said, no, he is not my husband. I cannot accept him as my husband. All in all, she was just out of love, did not want him to be killed. The peasant is dismayed, but standing nearby is a priest who hears everything. The priest says, look, O king, there is a way to know the truth. 
I have a medicine that when both men drink it, they will have to tell the truth. So both of them drink this medicine. And then he says, since one of you is going to die, each of you may go and spend five more minutes alone with this girl. They hung a huge barrel on a rod and separated them from each other. So first, the, the peasant went into the room with this long bar and a barrel around the bar and, another, and the young woman standing on the other side. And while they're in that room together, uh, the, uh, the peasant holds one end, the woman holds the other end. The woman says, please forgive me, my love. The only reason I said what I did is that I'm trying to save your life. Then the prince comes into the room as well. And the prince stands on the other end of the bar while the woman is on this end and says, if you ever say that that man is your husband, I will kill you and I will kill him. But the thing that neither the prince nor the young woman nor the man knew was that inside the barrel was a young boy writing down the entire conversation. And he was recording what was being said, and the priest took the recording, handed it to the king, and said, King, your son is lying. This peasant is the real husband of this woman. Now, again, if the story ends there, it's brilliant. But here's what happens. In the play, Ravi Zacharias says that the king gets so angry, he orders his soldiers to come and kill the peasant and to also kill the young woman. And in the end, there is no satisfaction because the bad side ended up winning in the end. And as Ravi Zacharias leaves that play with his interpreter that night, who, by the way, was not a Christian, he asks the interpreter, that was an unsatisfying story. What do you think was missing? And the interpreter says, Dr. Zacharias... A savior was missing. There was no hero to come up and take the cause of the needy and to rescue those who were oppressed in that story. We needed a savior. Church, this morning, the Old Testament may end with this miserable, miserable story, but this morning I'm here to tell you the story is not over. The story does not end in Nehemiah 13. In fact, the Old Testament may end, but guess what? There's a new story about to start if you flip a couple of pages and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. The more we read Nehemiah, the more we understand that Nehemiah could not do it on his own. The more you look at the Old Testament, Adam and Eve could not do it on their own. You understand Abraham could not do it on his own. Moses could not do it on his own. David and Samuel and Saul and all the other kings and prophets of Israel could not do it on their own. And all of the story, all of the Old Testament pointed to one truth that no matter what we do, we can't do it ourselves. We need a Savior. And this morning, this is the truth that should be penetrating our hearts as we sit here today. No matter what I do, I cannot reconcile the relationship with God. All of us sitting here have experience with this one factor, that no matter how much I try to be my best, I still mess up constantly. I still fall short of the glory of God. No matter how much I think I have a good heart, I know my heart, and I know it's not good. As much as I think that I'm nice to other people, I know those moments that I easily forget where I'm not nice to other people. All of us understand what it's like to be broken, living in a broken world, separated from God. And when we get to this part of our lives, we could also say, the story is over, it didn't go well. But thank God that we need a Savior, and a Savior is provided. Here's what Tim Keller says about us and the gospel. The gospel is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. 
yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. The entire Old Testament, my friends, points to this simple fact. We need a Savior. We need a Savior, and without that Savior, we will never get anywhere. Here's what we end up doing oftentimes in our lives. We end up looking to ourselves. Maybe I will be the solution. Maybe I will provide what God can't provide for me right now. I will be the solution. Right after Lynn and I got married about, uh, it was about almost nine years ago, when we were, uh, we'd, we'd gone on a vacation with our siblings. And during that vacation, uh, we decided that we would have the wonderful idea of renting jet skis to go out into the ocean. Um, I was going to show a picture of us, <laughs> but these people are smiling, so I thought I'd show you guys this picture. Uh, here's what happened. Lynn and I went out on these jet skis one day, and uh, the guide, there was a guide with us for a little while at least, I don't know what happened to him later, but he was with us for a little while. He took us out about two and a half, three miles out into the ocean, which we can't see anything. We can't see the shore. We can't see anything around. It's just open ocean, uh, and we're out there. While we're out there, neither of us are really adventurous people, and so we're just going very slowly at this point. And, and a wave comes and flips us over, which that's okay. You're supposed to fall off and climb back onto your jet ski every once in a while. Now, the trick is that you, you have a key inside the ignition, and the key is attached to a little plastic band around your, around your wrist, and the plastic band is actually meant to pull the key out. So every time you fall, the key comes out, you just flip it right back over again, and you get onto the jet ski. Except when we fell... The plastic band tore, but the key stayed in the ignition. <laughs> and so the boat flips over, and it's still, the engine is still going, and the boat just capsizes. The, the, the jet ski capsizes. So Alin and I are out in the middle of open ocean. Uh, neither of us are what you would call swimmers. And so, <laughs> so I was going to say expert, but I can't even throw that word in there. So we're out in the middle of the ocean, and it is just desperate. There is nothing. The guide was with us for a little while. He took off at some point, probably went to go find other customers. And so we're in the middle of the ocean just swimming, just floating around. We don't know what to do at this point. Thankfully, after some time, uh, one of, the, one of the, the guides realized that we were down and finally came by. This is probably about 20 minutes later of us floating in the ocean. He has enough room on his jet ski to take one of us, so clearly I went first. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> Lynn went on the, on the jet ski and went back, and went back to shore, and he said, I will come back and get you, and I thought, please do, that would be very nice of you. <laughs> and I remember sitting there in the open ocean for about 15 minutes, by myself with waves just washing over me, mind you, it's just my face sticking out of the ocean at this point, it's very high water, and, and the tide is very strong, and I remember thinking how desperate I am in this moment. There is nothing I can do to save myself in this moment. If I swam with all my strength toward the shore, I would go about 50 feet away from the shore before I went toward the shore because the tide was so strong. There was nothing I could do to save myself until that person came back and put me on that jet ski. I needed a savior. I needed someone to rescue me from that moment. But here's the truth of what we live through every single day. 
we live through this world where we're so comfortable, we get complacent. We forget the fact that all of us are in the middle of the ocean, desperate for a savior. We start to assume we're secure, we're fine. I'm living a good life. I'm, I have a good family. I have a decent job. I'm doing things right. We get comfortable in that feeling, not realizing that the truth is we are in the middle of the ocean, clinging on to our life jackets, praying that someone will come and save us. And if you understand the true nature of where you are right now, you'll understand without this Savior, there's nowhere I can go, no way I can ever be connected back to God. So what do we do? In situations like this, we turn usually to three different or four different places. Number one, we turn to ourselves. We think, look, I'm desperate. My life is broken and messed up. This is what I'll do. I'll get a better haircut. I'll make a little bit more money. I'll do six-minute abs. I'll do something in my life to make myself better, and then I'll feel content. I'll feel fulfilled. Things will be better in my life. But the Word of God in the Old Testament teaches us over and over again that Nehemiah had great intentions, but even he couldn't do what these people needed done for themselves. We, read a, we, we, we sing a song like this, O oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. And here's that favorite part of that song. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. It's one of those songs where we recognize, God, no matter how good I think I am, I'm still going to run away from you. I'm still going to be separated from you, no matter how hard I try. There's this, this Oprah gospel that we have in the world today, right, where you, everything you need is inside yourself. Just fix yourself, and you'll be better. But all of history and all of our own lives teaches us no matter how much we do, we're always still going to fall short. No matter how nice my hair is or my house is or my car is or my abs are, I will still fall short of God. I will still be disconnected from God. I need a Savior. So many of us, when we can't get it in ourselves, we run to other people. We think things like, look, as long as I, as soon as I get a husband or a wife or as soon as I have children or as soon as someone else comes into my life, I will feel fulfilled and everything will be okay. And again, it teaches us that, look, we're still going to be disappointed. We'll be disappointed in those people. They'll be disappointed in us. We will never find fulfillment in those, in those things. We try to find it in politics, or we try to find it in fun, or we try to find it in food and drugs, and we try to find it in other things, but it's never actually there. So then what do we do? We don't get it from ourselves, we don't get it from others, we don't get it from the world around us. We run to religion a lot of times. We say, look, if I can run into, uh, into a religious setting and if I can go and appease God by doing a bunch of good things, then I will tip the scales in my favor. I will win his favor and then everything will be okay. And the Old Testament again shows us no matter how much you try to do that, it will still fall short. Religion can't do it. You might think that's a little strange that someone in this setting is saying that. Because here at Mount Hope and here throughout the Word of God, we see over and over again that religion, where you are trying to win the favor of God, does not work. But a relationship with God where you accept the grace that he shows you does work. And that's why we encourage you to a relationship here in this church and, in this, and, and when we read Scripture. We cannot tip the scales in our favor. 
400 years of silence is about to pass when Nehemiah chapter 13 closes. 400 years of silence. Nothing's happened, but God does not speak to the people for 400 years. When the 400 years are up, can you imagine the disappointment, the frustration, the failure, the sin that, wow, after all of this, God, after you called Abraham and you separated him and all of his people have been born and have filled the earth, is this it, God? Is this the end of it? This is my favorite part because the story isn't over at that point. 400 years of silence after Nehemiah 13, and the 400 years of silence ends with this. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. He is Jesus Christ the Lord. The story isn't over, my friends. The story is far, far from over. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, God was giving us hints of his solution right from the beginning. It's not like God didn't know what man would do. So right from the beginning of the Old Testament, he was showing us the solution. He was showing us the answer that he was preparing. He told us in the book of Genesis that this solution would be born of a woman. He told us that he would be from the tribe of Judah. He told us that he would be from the lineage of David. He told us that he would be born in Bethlehem. He told us in the book of Isaiah that he would be born of a virgin. He told us in the book of Daniel that he would be one as a son of man. He told us that he would be rejected and despised by his own people. He told us that his ministry would be in the area of Galilee. He told us that he would be despised, bruised by his own people. He told us that he would make a triumphal entry onto a, on a donkey into Jerusalem. He was even told that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver hundreds of years before he ever came to this earth. God was making a way where there seemed to be no way. He was making a way, and that way was not a thing. It was not a religion. It was not a group. It was Jesus Christ. That was the way that was being given to us. My friends, this morning, we need a Savior. That's all it comes down to. All of Nehemiah points to the simple fact that on our own, we will try, we will try, we will try, but we will ultimately fail and fall back. But here is an offer being made to each of us this morning. That offer comes in the person of Jesus Christ, and that offer is simple. If you believe in me, if you accept me as your Savior, if you accept what I've done for you, then you have eternity with me and the Father forever. That's the promise. That's the, that's the goal that's been given to each of us. The story was never about a wall. It was never about a building. It was never about a building project. It was always about a Savior that was going to come and fulfill what we could not do on our own. How many of you have ever heard the story, the, the, the story of Les Mis, Les Miserables? Have you read the story or watched the movie or seen the play? Uh, if you haven't, uh, it's been around for 125 years. I'm not going to hopefully give away too much of it right now, but... Uh, Les Mis is an incredible story of a gentleman named Jean Valjean who, who uh, is a terrible person. And one night he goes and he's, uh, he's sleeping in the home of a priest in the church and he steals from that priest. And he's caught stealing from that priest as he goes the next morning. And when, the, when he's captured and brought back to the priest, he's questioned in front of the priest and the priest stands up for Jean Valjean and says, no to the authorities, he did not steal from us, we gave those things to him. And Valjean experiences this incredible grace, and his entire life is changed because of the grace he experiences from that priest. He starts to shower people with grace. 
But there's another person in the story too, and that's an inspector named Javert, a police, a police authority. And Javert is hunting Valjean throughout their lives together. And this is an incredible story of the back and forth between the two of them. At one point, Valjean has captured Javert. So the, the good guy has captured the policeman and has every ability to kill him at that moment. But Valjean, remembering the grace that he was shown, showers the grace on Javert and Javert is let go. But the problem is that Javert was so used to following the rules. And when he followed the rules, and still at the end of following the rules, this man who had every ability to kill me didn't kill me, it bothers Javert so much that he eventually takes his own life. He cannot understand grace. He cannot understand that someone else would lavish love upon him. And Javert ends his life. And now all of us, all of us sitting here this morning, we have a, we have a decision to make. Now, for some of us, you've already made this decision. But there are areas of our lives where we still replace God with ourselves or with others or with other things, and we try to do things our own way. But for those of you who have not made that decision this morning, let me ask you, let me remind you, this is the most important decision you'll ever make in life. The most important decision you'll ever make has almost nothing to do with your family, your school, your education, your work, your anything else, who you marry. It has to do with your response to what Jesus has done for you. What is your response to that? Will you accept the grace and live a life of grace, or will you see the grace and ignore it and reject it? The option is left to you. Because as I said before, we are all a part of this story. I'm going to conclude with this. We are all a part of this story. It's not something that just happened 2,500 years ago. This is happening right now. That Jesus, just like it was in the time of Nehemiah, we could do things on our own and think we could get away with it. But here is Jesus saying, look, at some point you have to realize you can't do it on your own. There's no way to reconcile the relationship between God and man unless God does something in your place. And that's when Jesus came down. He died for our sins. He wiped the slate clean, washed us white as snow, set us free. And because of that sacrifice, we can now be reconciled back to God. We have heaven. We have eternity with him because of what he did for us. This morning, there's a decision for each of us to make. For those of you who haven't made the decision, I'm gonna, I'm, I'll encourage you, please carefully consider this decision. Here is Jesus offering you eternity, offering you what we could not do on our own. And all of us have an opportunity to either accept that or reject that. And when we ignore it, we reject it, by the way. Today, you have a chance to make that decision. Uh, Bill and Karen will be up here. Alyn and I will be up here. Pastor Brian's available. If that's a decision you would like to make for yourself this morning, as our worship team comes up to, to lead us in worship, this area of the, of the church is available for you to come, and maybe if you want to kneel or have someone pray with you, or, or if you would like someone to pray with you on the sides, that area is available for you. If you'd like to be right at where you're sitting, if you're more comfortable there, don't leave today until you have solidified your eternity, until you know for sure where your eternity lies, because all of us need a Savior. If you'd like to talk with one of us, Pastor Brian or myself or anyone else after service, we are available to have that conversation with you. But as we wrap up Nehemiah this morning, the book of Nehemiah was not about a wall. 
It was about a Savior that was coming, about a Savior that would change the entire dynamic, that would flip the script of time on its head and remind us there was nothing that you and I could do on our own. We needed a Savior. And when Jesus died on that cross, when he gave his life for us, and when he rose again, he showed all of us that death could not hold him, the grave could not stop him, that only he could do what we could never do for ourselves. And this morning, with all of his love, with his arms open wide, he welcomes you to make that decision for him today. There's a song we often sing, and it goes like this, that what heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled and striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand, in Christ alone who took on flesh the fullness of God in helpless babe, the gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid, here in the death of Christ I live. This morning when Pastor Brian was leading us through communion, he asked us to remember the suffering of Jesus Christ body that was pierced and the blood that was shed for you and I, what an amazing sacrifice that was. In a time when soldiers will do anything to die for their kings, it was our king who chose to die for us. And that offer is available to you this morning. I'm going to pray for us at this time, but as we lead in worship, don't leave today until you know where you stand in that decision because all of us need a savior. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you this morning thanking you for the miserable, unhappy ending in Nehemiah 13. Because it ultimately pointed us to the wonderful, amazing, undeserved grace that you would show us when the page turned. But Lord, that you would be willing to die for us and to rise again and to reign victorious even in our lives right now. Thank you that we are a part of this ongoing narrative that started in Eden and continues today. That you have made a way where there seemed to be no way, where we could not reconcile ourselves back to you. God, you reconcile us back to you, and we thank you for that. God, I pray for every one of my friends here this morning. For those who have made this decision, I thank you for them. Thank you for the assurances they have in you. Thank you for the lives they have in you. But God, for every area of our lives where we do not value you or put you first, help us to make that change. And for every one of my friends here this morning who has not made that decision yet, let this be the morning, oh God, where their lives are changed forever, where they decide, God, you have done for me what I could not do on my own. Let this be the turning point in their lives. We thank you for your love give you worship and thanks. We thank you for the book of Nehemiah this past couple of weeks. Thank you for what you have taught us. We thank you for rebuilding. We thank you for what you've done. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks again for listening to this sermon from the Belmont campus of Mount Hope. If you live in the Belmont area, we'd love to have you join us each Sunday at 10 a.m. Or if you'd like to know more about Mount Hope Christian Center with campuses in Burlington and Belmont, Massachusetts, you can visit our website at www.mounthope.org.